Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are anxious to hear from you. We thank you for this really marvelous stand that you took on Good Friday, on Monday, Thursday. Would you please help us to see, first of all, that we need you to stand because we have fallen. And secondly, as we embrace you, who stood for us, would we, as a result of this sermon, learn to stand with you? In Jesus' name, amen. One of the highlights of the last uh, couple of weeks for me, personally, has been the privilege that I have had to read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress with my son, Caleb. Uh, we still got a ways to go. We've got about two-thirds of the book ahead of us. But we have so enjoyed this. Uh, for those of you who don't know Pilgrim's Progress, it was written by John Bunyan in 1678 and is second only to the Bible worldwide in publication and distribution. There is no book even close to Pilgrim's Progress in terms of publication and distribution in the history of the planet than Pilgrim's Progress, second to the Bible. Pilgrim's Progress was written by a man incarcerated in and out of a prison cell in Bedford, England over the period of 12 years, John Bunyan. In fact, those 12 years Bunyan was in prison, freedom was only one signature away. And he never did it. He was to sign a document indicating that he would never preach again. And even though he had a wife and six children, one of whom was blind, he never signed the release. In his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, Bunyan wrote of the sobering, and steadying effect that a scripture like 2 Corinthians 1.9 had on him. 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Reflecting on this verse, Bunyan wrote, By this scripture... I was made to see that if I would ever suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing to me in this life. Even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, and my enjoyment all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. Or as we say sometimes with our kids, when things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. Bunyan walked out of that prison cell with a book that has exposed more people to the gospel than any other writing outside the Bible in the history of the world. The irony of that imprisonment is pretty spectacular, isn't it? They didn't want him to preach the gospel. So by virtue of its publication, he preached the gospel to more people than he ever could have if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I, I just commend it to you. 
Uh, With nothing more than a fifth-grade education, Bunyan wrote this book. He completed this masterwork. It's the story of one man's journey to heaven, from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And more than anything else, what makes this book so memorable are its characters. When Bunyan painted a picture of a character, he did it with the person's name. The person's name was who they were, their identity. So, for instance, the hero is called Christian. And he comes to faith in Jesus through the preaching of a man named Evangelist. Along the way, Christian meets with friends who have names like Help, Goodwill, Interpreter, Faithful, Hopeful. Okay? And as he journeys, there are travelers, a lot of them, much more concerning. Ones with names like Pliable, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Talkative, Mr. Hate Light, and my favorite, Mr. Facing Both Ways. This book is brilliant. We are having an absolute blast reading it. Nevertheless, I am reminded when we read it at night, when we're swept away into this story, that Bunyan doesn't tell this merely for our 21st century entertainment. What makes this fictional account so very powerful is that the truths that it describes are nonfiction. There's no deceit in this book. The manuscript cost Bunyan 12 years in jail, and his family suffered mightily while he wrote it. Bunyan wrote this, The parting with my wife and my poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. He once said that he'd sooner have his own eyes put out than to subject his little blind daughter to the humility of growing up with a father who denied Jesus. His family didn't want him to sign the paper either, by the way. He never traded on preaching the name of Jesus. Now, I say all that to say this. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, Jesus Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, Jesus Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In the great tradition of Pilgrim's Progress, I'd like to introduce the text that Dave read to us uh, in three categories of faithless deniers and then one category of faithful Savior. This morning, we will behold the faithless deniers and we will behold the faithful Savior. If we are faithless, Jesus Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's begin with three characters, three types of faithless deniers. First point, behold, the faithless deniers, let's begin with the betrayers. The betrayers. The Gospel of John was written according to chapter 20, verse 31. You should know this by now if you've been in our church for any length of time. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So trust and belief and faith in Jesus is what this gospel exists to produce. Nevertheless, in the text before us, 
we have three sorts of unbelief. The most obvious form of which are those who betray Jesus. Betrayal, duplicity, disloyalty, treachery, we might say. And it's words such as these that particularly describe the work of Judas in this moment. And also, in a broader sense, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews and the high priest Caiaphas and even his father-in-law, Annas. Some people just don't do much to hide their contempt for Jesus. Like the men in this account, they come to him with lanterns and torches and weapons, verse 3. They speak words that, though full of malice, are also expressions of prophecy in the great plan of God, like Caiaphas, who says in verse 14, it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You know, in John 11, beginning in verse 52, the author of this gospel refers to those words of the high priest as unwitting prophecy about Jesus. He says, rather that one man should die, then the whole nation should perish. Amen. Caiaphas. Some people are so blinded by their betrayal of Christ that they beat him. And they say terribly ironic things, like the officer in verse 22. Did you catch this? Is that how you answer the high priest? Who was he talking to? The high priest. The great high priest. That's irony. There's a certain dryness. There's even a satire about that statement, I think. Jesus is the high priest. He's the great high priest. This man has no earthly idea who he's talking to. You say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. There aren't people like that around today. Really? The kingdom hall here in Navarre is full of them. Jehovah's Witnesses are just like this. They speak of Jesus. They use language that seems Christian enough in certain ways. But they betray him with a kiss. I know these folks come to your door because they come to mine. They came to mine a couple of weeks ago. And we spent about 45 minutes on my doorstep talking about the gospel. They had ice in their eyes. They deny the deity of Christ. They mock the doctrine of the Trinity. They're not fooling around. Do you pray for them? you talk to them? Do you know what they believe? Educate yourself. We have books, booklets in Fellowship Hall. What to do when a Jehovah's Witness comes to the door. One piece of advice is not to let them in your house. Have the discussion on your doorstep. They sound like believers, but they are not. They are betrayers. How else are they going to come to know Jesus if we don't talk to them? Behold the faithless deniers. Secondly, let's look at the avenger. The avenger. Now when I say avenger, I hope you know I'm not talking about a Marvel comic hero. This is much more frightening. This is Peter, the avenger. Look with me at verse 10. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And parenthetically, John says the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, I remember preaching this in Mark's gospel a handful of years ago. And I remember thinking to some degree, I know Peter did the wrong thing. We all know that. But this looked impressive to me to some degree. I was thinking, this is maybe even slightly commendable. I mean, his, his savior is under attack. And so he goes on the offensive. He pulls out a sword, and surely he meant to cause more damage, but he's a fisherman with a sword in his hand. And he ends up hacking off the right ear of one of the high priest's servants. But mark it, Jesus is not impressed. He rebukes Peter. He castigates him as he's being arrested. Why? Because if Peter had succeeded any further in his plans, Jesus might not have gotten to the cross. Once again here, the irony is thick. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Peter... I will drink this cup. You need me to drink this cup. My kingdom does not advance by the shedding of blood unless it is our own. We do not kill in order to make disciples of Jesus. We die, if necessary, in order to make disciples of Jesus. Now, it is entirely possible that a text like this fell on deaf ears in the pews of churches in our nation up until Sunday, September 9th, 2001. But on Sunday, September 16th, 2001, pastors from coast to coast were presiding over a national funeral when nearly 3,000 Americans lost their lives on American soil. Why? Because the sword of conservative Islam came out of its sheath and struck down the infidels. Now, that Christians ought not to advance their agenda by vigilante violence is clear from a a verse like this. But the other side of it tends to be forgotten. And we need to see it. As evangelical Christians, our greatest temptation in our mission, I don't think, is at the level of radical betrayal, probably, or forceful retaliation. But rather, our greatest temptation exists at the level of skillful avoidance of suffering of any kind as we follow Jesus. It's the final sort of faithless denial. So, behold the betrayers, behold the avenger, but lastly, behold the avoider. The avoider. Notice, the same person commits both acts of unbelief, doesn't he? Peter is the avenger, but he's also the avoider. He blows hot, he blows cold. These are opposite errors, 
and they happen within hours of each other. Peter makes for a stunning case study, I think, in biblical counseling. If you're interested in the psychology of the human soul, Peter is an interesting case study, isn't he? This is the same man. Avenger one minute, avoider the next minute. Both of which are acts of unbelief. Now let's recall not long before this occurs that Jesus and Peter have an exchange that's recorded in chapter 13, verses 36 to 38, and it sets the table for this. In John 13, 36, John writes, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And as we studied this lesson a a few weeks ago, uh, the, the truth here is very simple. Peter is not ready to follow Jesus into heaven if he is not willing to follow him here on earth. 2 Timothy 3.12 is as true for us today as it was for the early Christians 2,000 years ago. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Period. There's no clause on that statement. There's no exception for Christians following Jesus in a nation such as ours that has rights such as we do. The lack of persecution that we experience on a day-to-day basis in the West Tonka area is not, I repeat, not a function of any document under bulletproof glass in Washington, D.C. right now. Rather, Our lack of persecution in this country is primarily a function of our lack of desire to live a godly life. And if this truth burns you, let it burn. 2 Timothy 3.12, God says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So take it to the bank. If America saw more of the real thing from us, a desire to live a godly life, they would push back. Yes, they will, and they are. They push back on Jesus, on Paul, on John Bunyan, and they'll push back on you and me. But you know who they won't push back on? Peter. Not in this moment. You know why? Because he's acting just like them. The world loves its own. The world embraces its own. And if you are not being persecuted in any sense for your faith in Jesus, then you simply do not have much faith in Jesus. Me too. 
Jesus said to his own brothers before they came to believe in him in John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testified about it that its works are evil. I realize that evangelism is for many of us one of life's greatest challenges, isn't it? Um, You find more in it to be concerned about than to be ecstatic about. I, I get that. I know that feeling, and if that's you, I invite you to let the Word of God speak to you in this point. Uh, For your study questions this week, the topic is evangelism. Uh, Please get into a community group this week, or if it's not meeting, at least work yourself through those study questions. Uh, Six questions that are on the inside of your sermon notes. To avoid evangelistic opportunity simply because of the possibility that there could be some suffering involved, is tantamount to denying Jesus. If you are a believer, please don't live your life in unbelief on this point. Now, if you're feeling convicted, that's good. That's really good. And if you want to be encouraged, I would invite you not now, but uh, soon, to turn to John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19, and see the really good ending of Peter's colossal failure in John 18. There's restoration for Peter. And if this point convicts you as it convicts me, there's restoration for you too. The betrayers, the avenger, the avoider. Behold the faithless deniers. Now, let's be heartened and reassure ourselves here with our final point. Behold the faithful Savior. Behold the faithful Savior. Because here's the issue. Even if you aren't a betrayer or an avenger, even if you aren't an avoider, even if you are a spectacularly courageous evangelist, even if you're an evangelistic all-star, you still need a Savior, right? Praise God that justification is not by how often we share our faith. Justification's by what? Faith. By grace, through faith. Amen. So in these remaining moments, let's behold the faithful Savior. Look with me as we close now at verses 4 to 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. And said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Behold the faithful Savior. Now in verses 4 through 9, as we close, let's just be really encouraged. Let's, Let's view four ways that Jesus is a faithful Savior. Four angles from which we can see how faithful he is to save. Jesus is, first, expecting to suffer. Second, engaging his enemies. Third, 
identifying himself. That's third. Fourth, protecting his own. Jesus is a faithful savior, expecting to suffer, verse 4. Engaging his enemies, verse 4. Identifying himself, verses 5 and 6. And protecting his own, verses 7 to 9. Isn't Jesus a faithful savior? He's everything we need. He's everything we're not. Jesus Christ is a faithful Savior. And notice, these four aspects of his faithfulness are also commands for all of us who who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So if you are a Christian, expect to suffer. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4.12 encourages us to expect to suffer. Secondly, engage your enemies. Engage your enemies. Jesus says in Matthew, how do you do that? How do you engage your enemies? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Engage your enemies. How? Love. Third, identify with Jesus. Identify with Jesus. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Identify with Jesus. Finally, protect your own. Protect your own. This point is John 18, verse 8. Where Jesus says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. To be honest with you, I want to talk to the men in the room, if I can. I saw some heads. That's good. That's good. Men of Mount Free Church, we are made to be protectors. Defenders. Defenders of our households as well as the household of God. So let's be people who step up and defend what is entrusted to our care. Our wives, our children, our flock, our neighborhoods, our doctrine, our mission. Our mission. Adam was put in Eden to work the garden and to keep it. Genesis 2.15. Keep it. That word keep means defend. The one thing he didn't do. As John Milton says, it was the beginning of all our woe. Defend, guard, let's not fail on this point. Jesus is a faithful Savior protecting his own. Finally, this last one is for all of us. Behold the faithful Savior speaking openly to the world. Speaking openly to the world. Look with me at verses 20 to 23. Jesus answered, Caiaphas, I have spoken openly to the world. 
I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, uh, who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Behold the faithful Savior speaking openly to the world. This is what we need. We need steel in our backbone to speak openly to the world. If you are in Christ, God is with you and he is for you. God gave you a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Unlike the Lord, no human being is worthy of your fear. In the age to come, evangelistic cowardice will be condemned, but evangelistic courage will be rewarded. And if you stand in need of more courage in your witness, more candor, more freedom, more frankness, more openness, behold the faithful Savior speaking openly to the world. Well, if we are faithless, Jesus Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Behold the faithless deniers, betrayers, avenger, avoider. Behold the faithful Savior, expecting to suffer, engaging his enemies, identifying himself, protecting his own, speaking openly to the world. He is a faithful Savior. Today is Palm Sunday. We take our next step together as a church in Holy Week corporately as we gather here in the sanctuary Thursday evening, 7 o'clock for Maundy Thursday. Friday evening, remember we come together with our friends from Calvary, 7 p.m. at their place for Good Friday. And then the Lenten season comes to close one week from today, 9 a.m., there's brunch, 10.30, Resurrection Sunday, Easter celebration. Right now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, first of all, thank you for being our Savior. If we're not just like Judas and Caiaphas and the soldiers, if we're not just like them in this room, then we certainly are like Peter. Avenger one minute, avoider the next. Lord, please help us find ourselves in this story. Because it really turned out well for Peter. It really turned out well for Peter. Jesus, thank you for suffering for us, for all of our sins. And thank you too for your example. You suffered for us, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, suffered for us, leaving us an example that we might follow in your steps. In Jesus' name, amen.